welcome to our 11th annual Writers' Symposium by the Sea at Point Loma Nazarene University. I'm Dean Nelson. I'm the journalism faculty here. Gary Hart is the reason I became interested in politics in America. He spoke at my university when I was a college freshman. I was impressed by his passion and his intellect and his obvious love for his country. He loved it so much that he wanted to participate in making it better. He and I share some similar uh, religious roots as well. We both went to Nazarene universities, then went on to Yale Divinity School and received a doctorate in philosophy at Oxford. I didn't do those last two things. <laughs> I know what you're thinking. We went to Nazarene schools for our undergrads, and he spoke at mine and lit a political fire in me that has not gone out. He was a U.S. Senator representing the great state of Colorado, a uh, presidential candidate, has, uh, since he left public office, has written extensively on politics and on history, some fiction, some journalism, his essay, God and Caesar in America, the convergence of religion and politics uh, is, is absolutely wonderful, and I uh, recommend it to you. He's also headed some government commissions, including the uh, National Security Commission that predicted in 2001, when that report was published, that there were terrorist cells in the United States and quite probably were planning an attack on this country. This program is in partnership with the City Club of San Diego and with UCSD Television, Please give a warm Writers' Symposium welcome to one of my political heroes, Gary Hart. Thanks, Professor Nelson. Those of you who travel, as I do, may be tired of carrying 800-page books on the airplane. Um, I often say 800-pound books, but 800-page books. Here is the answer to your problem. <laughs> Fits in a pocket or purse, $9.95, not $39.95. And, and it's a part of a series. Uh, actually, it turns out, historically, there used to be essays published in America in the Depression when people couldn't afford books. And so the writers of the age, Mencken and others, would write essays. 80, this is 86 pages. Um, and people would buy them for 10 cents or so because that's about all they could afford. But it was the essay. It wasn't an op-ed in the newspaper. It wasn't a book. It was an essay. So a local publisher in Denver, I kind of triggered them on this idea, has now, is now beginning to turn out a series of these um, across the political spectrum. I write one. George McGovern writes one. <laughs> that's kind of a joke. Um, it's a, <laughs> let's say the publisher is a bit on the progressive, we used to say, liberal side. Uh, my former governor, Dick Lamb, has one out, and uh, they're beginning to be more. But it's pocket size, affordable, even for poor students. And, um, and there are some, uh, meant to be some ideas here. Now, let me just run through the contents of this, and I think you'll get a sense of what this is all about. I talk about the fact that there is a religious revival going on in America today, and there's nothing new about that. Um, I think many of you who are students of history know that Jonathan Edwards in the pre-constitutional era 
had the Great Awakening, in which there was a profound revival across American society, colonial society at the time, followed uh, periodically, and I am a student of Arthur Schlesinger's Cycles of American History, so America tends to go through, in his, in his fra uh, phrase, a progressive era and then a conservative era. Progressive era, conservative era. I think the same is true of religion. We have um, social upheavals. People lose a sense of um, that we, we may be adrift morally, ethically, or whatever. And that is generally followed by some kind of religious revival. Uh, Billy Sunday, in the early part of the 20, late 19th, early part of the 20th century, certainly Billy Graham. So you get the idea. Now, there is a religious revival in the late 20th, early 21st century, but I propose here that it's different in two respects from traditional American religious revivals. First of all, it is only one wing of one religion, and that is the evangelical or conservative wing of Protestantism. I don't see the same kind of revival, if you will, in the Catholic Church, uh, the Jewish American community, any other faiths, although with the end of the Cold War, there was a rise of fundamentalism in Islam and a number of other religions worldwide. And I think to a degree, there are some parallels here with this religious revival. The other distinct aspect of this, more than any other, I think, unless those of you who are historians here can correct me, this religious revival, narrow as it is, is more political than any other religious revival in American history. And I think it needs to be said that that insertion of that wing of Protestantism into the political system is basically uh, is an affiliation with one party, in, in this case the Republican Party. So that's what's different, and I, I discuss that as to set the scene. Then second I talk about, I qualify myself to write this. I think if you, any writer, um, at least in my case, I always feel like I've got to explain to people who, why <laughs> I have any credentials to talk about this subject at all, whether it's religion or security or whatever. So I have a few pages about my background, and I talk about the Church of the Nazarene. I went actually from the Church of the Nazarene to the Yale Divinity School. Now, theologically, and I think politically as well, if the Church of the Nazarene was here, the Yale Divinity School was over here. Um, Congregationalist, historic, uh, very social, socially minded. And uh, that was an interesting experience. I didn't go there to become a minister. I went there to work on a PhD in philosophy and religion and teach. And uh, just to show you how life sometimes goes in huge cycles, I just accepted a teaching or professorship at the University of Colorado. It only took me about 40 or some years to, <laughs> to make it back to the academy, but there you are. Um, there was a, some detours along the way in politics and so on. I have a little uh, chapter here on faith in what. Now, part of the puzzlement, I think, of the, this particular religious revival is that there are code words being used in this era of the last, say, 15, 20 years. And two of those code words are faith and values. And so those who are on the conservative religious political right talk about we're, we're the, we believe in faith and values, the suggestion being, of course, that if you're not with them, then you don't believe in faith and values. But almost never do they define what faith and what values. 
Now this enables those who talk in those terms to have it both ways. They can say, we're people of faith and values. If you have faith and values, you will support us and join us because the other side has no faith and values. But they don't tell you what faith or what values. And what I try to do here is to, um, if you will, smoke them out. Spell out what faith and what values. Um, Because I think when you, these are code words, and they are meant to communicate among a certain political uh, religious elite uh, specific values and a specific faith. A conservative Christianity uh, and those values have to do with anti-choice and often bizarrely gun con- uh, anti-gun control, pro-death penalty, and, and that's the social agenda. But that's not spelled out because it might turn some people off. So let's just talk about faith and values, position ourselves uh, in that camp and and leave the impression that if you're not in that camp, you have no faith and you have no values. So I think those of us, I know President Carter, coming out of the Southern Baptist tradition, now has a um, best-selling book out on this subject. I'm not jealous. (laughs) Best-selling book. Uh, And... um, I think people who talk it, use that language of faith and values ought to, ought to say um, what they mean. I'm going to read a few passages here because I write better than I speak. There is a strong suggestion concerning those who choose not to adopt the vague values rhetoric that they are valueless, that they do not have values, that they may even be anti-values. It, it is... Um, It should not be surprising that politically, those not expounding the, quote, values language, whether from confusion, disagreement, or disgust, are often those extravagantly loathed liberals. There's an almost inevitable logic. The plight in which the country finds itself is the product of losing our values. Liberals have created all mischief. Therefore, liberals have no values. Therefore, to regain our unspecified values, we must get rid of all the liberals. Closed systems have their own unassailable internal logic. Unfortunately, closed systems quickly become intellectually totalitarian. So I think that's what's been going on here with the the religious revival inserted into conservative um, politics. Now, a lot of Americans are concerned the government doesn't work, and I think they're absolutely right. Let me tell you why I think this has happened, and it is, has to do with this subject. Politics, whether we like it or not, and a lot of people don't like it, is a system based on compromise. Uh, this is a country, a two-party country. There are very liberal people. There are very conservative people. There are moderate people. The only way you can govern this country is for people on both sides to reach agreement. That is called compromise. That doesn't mean you give up your convictions. It just means if you want a health care system that works, or you want to clean up the environment, or you want a transportation system that, um, whose arteries aren't clogged, and on and on and on, you have to give up some of your ardent beliefs in order to reach that compromise. It's the only way you can govern this country. You can't govern it from the right, which is what's happening now. You can't even govern it from the left, except in times of depression and desperation. 
But it's all about compromise. Now, that doesn't mean giving up your convictions or any of those things. It just means on 90-plus percent of the issues, uh, conviction isn't, isn't, isn't involved. Now, so that's the only way you govern America. But religion is a system based on absolutes, right and wrong, good and evil, saved and unsaved, and so forth. So if you take a, a non-compromised system and put it on top of a system of compromise, namely uh, religious religion on top of politics, you are bound to get a political system that doesn't work because too many people in the system are saying, my way or the highway. And that's exactly what's happening in Congress today. You're either with us or you're against us. We will not compromise. We will not adopt your ideas. We know what's right. And we demand our way. And that has ground government to a halt. Um, this is from my wife, who handed it to me going out the door, because there's a passage in here she likes a lot. My social values are shaped by my religious beliefs, but do not need, but I do not need to impose my religious beliefs on others to promote my social values. That's a big difference. And um, what we have today is people saying, I have these religious convictions, and they require me to impose my social values on everybody else. That is a system that is not going to work. That's why we have a First Amendment. Jefferson and the others, in various ways, believe in God. Jefferson was a deist. He said divine providence. Others, Adams, Hamilton, Madison, and so on, had, uh, came out of religious traditions. And, of course, we've got God here and, and um, the supreme being there and scattered throughout the uh, constitutional debates. But the First Amendment to the Constitution said... There will be separation of church and states. Congress shall pass no law respecting the establishment of religion. Pretty clear to me what that means. What that means is you cannot take public funds and give them to churches to distribute. It's unconstitutional. Now, I don't know whether the Roberts Alito court, when it gets that case, as it will, is going to agree with that, but it is unconstitutional particularly when you're cutting the public funds from ongoing important social programs. Feeding the elderly, uh, housing for the homeless. You take that money away from those programs and you give it to churches. Well, what you're doing is establishing the church in America. Now, the First Amendment wasn't passed to protect the state from the church. It was to protect the church from the state because the founders came out of the old European tradition where the pope and the king were hand in glove. Sometimes the king appointed the pope. Sometimes the pope appointed the king. It was theocracy. It was the control of the state by the church. And to a person, our founder said, that's a bad situation. We don't want it here. We don't want the church picking judges. Let's talk about that a minute. I'm old enough to remember. Nobody else is. The John Kennedy campaign, 1940, and I did 60, sorry, 40 years ago, 45 years ago. Now, I remember from the Nazarene pulpits in Kansas City and elsewhere, Nazarene minister saying, if you vote for John Kennedy, it's a true story, if you vote for John Kennedy, the Pope will be in the White House. 
So we voted for John Kennedy. I don't remember the Pope coming to the White House. Maybe he was there. I don't know. But they got him in and out pretty secretly. Now let's suppose, as it turned out, that a Supreme Court vacancy occurs in 1961, as it did. Now let's suppose that the president said to Ted Sorensen, call up the Pope and ask the Pope if it's okay that we appoint this guy from Colorado named Byron White to the Supreme Court. Can you imagine what the conservative religious elements in this country would have done? They would have been in the streets. There would have been a revolution. Never happened, of course. But the irony is, 45 years later, that is exactly what is happening in this country. Coral Rove calls up a bunch of ministers in Colorado Springs and elsewhere and says, we want your blessing on Harriet Myers or Judge Alito or whomever. I think that's outrageous. I think that's also unconstitutional. You cannot turn over the appointment of appointed officials, elected officials, nomination of elected officials. There are lots of red states now where you cannot get the nomination of the Republican Party unless you have the blessing of the clerics, of the conservative clerics. I think that's very close to a theocracy, folks. And that's what's going on. They have a veto power over the judiciary of this country, not just the Supreme Court, every judicial appointment. Now, if you are of that mindset, you are probably going to want to export that idea internationally. And right now, the war we are involved in the Middle East isn't, a, isn't, isn't, about, isn't totally about terrorism. I think to a very slight degree is it about terrorism, only to the extent that we're training terrorists in Iraq. And they will come get us. The notion that you can, you know, we'll fight them over there so they don't come here is just total patent nonsense. It's total nonsense. That's like saying terrorists can only um, walk, but, but they can't chew gum at the same time. We're recruiting terrorists. The war in Iraq is recruiting terrorists, jihadists, jihadists. And to say that we're fighting terrorism, we're fighting two things in Iraq. We're fighting insurgents. We're also fighting jihadists. Two different things. They're not all terrorists. And I think the definition is when we leave, if we leave, who's going to follow us home? The insurgents are not going to follow us home. They want us out of Iraq. Now, they have their own purposes. They have their own mentality. But they are not going to follow us home. When the last Marine crosses the Iraq border, the insurgents aren't going to follow us home. That's 90-plus percent of those attacking Americans in Iraq today. Jihadists are less than 10 percent. They are going to follow us home. If we were to begin to talk to the insurgents, as I gather the administration after three or four years finally is doing, we can turn them against the jihadists. We can negotiate a withdrawal from Iraq on the condition that they eliminate the jihadists from their society, who are by, by and large not Iraqis. They're Saudis and Kuwaitis and a whole bunch of other things, but they're by and large not Iraqis, and they are going to follow us home, and we're training them. Um, let me wrap up on this because um, I'm way over time already. Um, America is not the, 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 a lot of Muslims uh, may or may not agree with democracy, which was, is our stated, now stated purpose in the Middle East, to promote democracy. Uh, let me come back to that in a moment. But they also sense that we're exporting our commercial 
system, which they may or may not ex- you know, believe in or accept. And we're also exporting our, commercial va- our, our social values, including our religious beliefs. The president once used early on the phrase crusader until somebody got a hold of him and said, um, Mr. President, not a good idea. People, people in that part of the country, in that part of the world, have long memories. And a thousand years ago, Christians showed up in the region and slaughtered a bunch of Muslims, and they don't particularly like the idea of the crusade. So he hasn't used that word anymore. I talk about the awful warmth of the gospel of Jesus, and here I think is the great Achilles heel of the religious right. I defy anyone to read the Sermon on the Mount and relay it to today's religious revival. This religious revival is intolerant, it's divisive, it's judgmental, none of which qualities apply to the gospel of Jesus. Jesus blessed different people in the Sermon on the Mount. He blessed those who mourn. He blessed the poor in spirit. Poor in spirit. He blessed those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Not those who proclaim righteousness, but those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. He blessed the peacemakers. Any of this sound familiar to you in the religious rite? I don't think so. He said, all of sin and come short of the glory of God. He said, judge not that ye be not judged. Doesn't sound like Dr. Dobson to me. Doesn't sound like a whole lot of other people. Uh, Dr. Land at the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, these are judgmental people. You're right or you're wrong. You're with us or you're against us. I don't find that in the Gospel of Jesus. The Gospel of Jesus, I mean, when the rich young man came to Jesus and said, what must I do to enter the kingdom of heaven? Jesus did not say, lobby your senator for a tax cut. He said, sell all that thou hast and give to the poor. That's radical. That is real radical. If you took the gospel of Jesus and imposed it on American politics today, there would be such a revolution in America you cannot imagine. So those trying to insert their way into politics better be careful in the name of Jesus in Christianity because they're not preaching the gospel of Jesus. It's a much, much different um, set of beliefs. I say in here, America is avenging angel. You know, we're out to... I guess now the reason for our war in Iraq is to get rid of an evil dictator. Last time I checked, there were 40 evil dictators in the world. One of them's in North Korea. A bunch of them are in Iran. Uh, which we are now rethinking about bombing. But they're also in other places. Robert Mugabe in Zimbabwe has killed more of his own people than Saddam Hussein ever did. Have you heard anyone in Washington talking about invading Zimbabwe to get rid of Robert Mugabe? Further, we're exporting democracy to the region. Let me tell you something, and it's illustrated by the election in Palestine. The last thing in the world this country wants, our country wants, and this government wants, is free elections in Egypt, free elections in Saudi Arabia, free elections in Pakistan. 
It's the last thing we want, because in every case, we'd end up with a right-wing, religious, fundamentalist, anti-American government. So we may be exporting democracy to Iraq, but not much more beyond that, because we'd really find ourselves with a mess on our hands. By the way, as Fareed Zakaria pointed out in a book two or three years ago, there's a difference in democracy. There's democracy, which simply means holding a national election, which the Palestinians just did, and the other countries really don't. He, go, he said there's liberal democracy. Now, you won't hear that from this administration because of that first word. But he defines liberal democracy as including equality for women, free press, opposition politics, rule of law, uh, untainted judiciary, and on and on and on. Now, if you use those standards, we're going to be in a, a lot of trouble trying to impose that on other countries. Um, there's a lot of good stuff in here, folks, and I wish I could read the whole book to you, but... <laughs> Micah, a late Old Testament prophet, I think summarized it for me very, very well, along with the Sermon on the Mount. What does the Lord require of thee but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God? Justice, mercy, and humility. These are indeed values by which to live. They are even better values by which to govern. I end up by saying, and I mean it sincerely, um, that my life has been blessed. Someday God in his wisdom may decide to govern a human nation. If so, he will decide which one and how it shall be governed. If he needs any help, he knows how to reach us. My guess is, if he does require our help, it will not be in the form of the religious figures seeking political power in America today. If, however, I am wrong, and if he selects them to govern America, he will surely understand if a few of us go in search of a democracy in which to live. I have been so greatly privileged that sometimes it almost makes me weep. My story is not all that much different from other Americans born into humble circumstances to upright parents and blessed by fortune. I have experienced economic depression and I've been blessed with a comfortable living. I've attended small town public schools and I've graduated from great universities of the world. I started without political advantage and I've approached the gates of the American presidency. I've driven spikes into countless railroad ties and I have been the guest of kings. To justify this extraordinary privilege and to be accountable to my creator, I've tried to make the utmost of what talent I was given. My greatest privilege is that I'm an American. That means that no man or woman can tell me what to believe. No minister, priest, or rabbi can dictate my political principles. No religious figure or organization can claim control of my government. No sect or church can replace the constitutional democracy that countless American patriots have given their lives to protect and preserve. I believe America still has a destiny. Whether that destiny is divinely dictated, neither I nor anyone else can ever say or ever know. I do believe that America's unrealized destiny has to do with achieving social justice in our society, leading the world through a time of great revolution, setting higher standards for the protection of our earth, raising the standard of human rights for all, and calling forth the better angels of our nature. God's work is never done, and as John Kennedy said, 
here on earth, God's work must surely be our own. In the words of our republic's greatest hymn, our God is marching on, and so is the United States of America. Thank you very much.